This podcast brought to you by ACES, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure and Morin for sponsoring Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IA Summit. Information architects have always had an essential role in providing access to information and services. Emerging markets have an enormous need for this access, but also a range of constraints that make it hard for designers to deliver effective IA. Specialist in the service and UI design team with Nokia, Miles Rockford, help information architects understand the opportunities presented by emerging markets and the role IA can play in development and growth. Miles discusses tools and techniques for creating globally relevant IA, along with real-world examples of IA in emerging markets. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Uh, unfortunately, I've never really competed with ducks for a time slot before. Um, this is the second day in a row that I've competed with ducks. Apologies for the, uh, the move yesterday. The room just wasn't ready, uh, and I didn't want to make everyone stand for 45 minutes. So, The room, in fact, that we were in yesterday was the uh, Hernando de Soto room. Uh, and so, funnily enough, he's not actually a duck master. Uh, he's one of the few non-duck related things in the hotel. He was, in fact, a, uh, a conquistador, an explorer from, uh, from Spain, and, uh, you know, exploring the New World. Uh, he died 435 years to the day that I was born, uh, about 150 miles from here. He was uh, one of the first explorers to, from, the, uh, from the Old World to uh, come and explore the full length of the Mississippi River. And so I suppose you could say that's an historic example of a failed strategy to engage with emerging markets. Um, you know, the Spanish tried it first and then, well, the British weren't terribly successful after that either. But, uh, but yeah, that's Hernando de Soto. Uh, quick intro to me, interaction designer from way back. This is my third uh, bubble, I used to say, but I suppose it's the third bust these days. Uh, I'm in a team at Nokia Design that specializes in service and UI design. Uh, and my job's pretty much at the moment all about understanding people, which is a really great sort of focus. Um, my team's about 50 people. We're in an organization of 350. Uh, there's 34 different countries and 15 different languages. So we're quite a diverse bunch of, uh, bunch of people. Um, just so that you're aware too, that says all of the opinions in this presentation are my own and not necessarily those of Nokia. I'm here on my own recognizance, so um, please don't blame anyone, uh, blame anyone else for what I have to say. I've been really lucky in the last uh, year or so to have been doing some work in emerging markets. Um, this is some photographs from a, uh, from a project that I was working on. Uh, I went to Egypt and some other members of my team were in uh, India, Brazil and Nigeria. Um, just so you know, these people aren't criminals. I just didn't have the right clearances to use their faces as identifiers. So they're really, really nice people. Um, the project that I was working on was uh, something that's been, uh, been launched called uh, Life Tools, which is essentially a uh, services, uh, service offering in uh, emerging markets focused on agriculture, education, and entertainment. Um, it's pretty exciting. I mean, I'm genuinely excited about the opportunity to make a difference in, uh, in people's lives. And there's some really quite nifty stuff that, um, that people have been looking at with services. And so my, my job on that project was sort of looking at, well, okay, where do we go from where we are now? And how do you create things that will improve people's uh, livelihood and um, give them a, an opportunity to sort of to grow. 
But that wasn't the first time I was exposed to emerging markets. First time was in fact in Shanghai in 2005, where I attended the World Toilet Forum. Um, back in a former life, I was uh, working on a project, the National Public Toilet Map in, uh, in Australia. And so it was pretty much my largest IA that I'd ever, ever created. It sort of had, had to have a hierarchy for every place and every toilet in Australia, uh, which was around about 120,000 places and 14,000 toilets. But the highlight of uh, my trip to Shanghai was, in fact, a tour of their finest public conveniences. Uh, we sort of got on a coach one morning and spent the day going around to the best of Shanghai's toilets. And it was, it was, it was fantastic to sort of wander around. You know, it was, uh, this was this my favorite. It was quite high tech, you know, very in touch with the rest of the world, sort of a Chernobyl-like control panel. This was my favorite from an IA perspective. It was little timers above the door so you could see how long people had been in each of the cubicles. But what was funny is you didn't really know what they were doing in there. And so I, I'm not quite sure whether there's a Chinese thing. I, I, think, I don't think those characters display, actually tell you that. But it was uh, a really interesting way of looking at that problem of which cubicle door should I wait outside uh, before I can go in. So unusual. But this was the thing that really grabbed me was uh, the fact that it cost one uh, Chinese yuan to get in and actually use the toilets. And to put that in perspective, that's more than a subway fare in Shanghai. Um, and it's in many parts of China, it's more than what people are earning in a day. Um, and so, you know, ultimately it interested me that IA might be a stretch, but A uh, was being used to sort of structure here according to class. And so I found that really interesting and that's what triggered my interest in IA and emerging markets. So in the presentation today, what I'd like to talk about is four, four things. So talk about the rest of the world, uh, talk about IA in emerging markets and some examples um, that I've sort of come across and some things to keep in mind. Uh, literacy and numeracy, which is sort of a personal uh, area of interest and why I think that's, um, that's so important. And then sort of wrap up with some tools and techniques for looking at uh, IA in emerging markets. What I'm not going to talk about in a lot of depth are these two things, internationalization and localization. There's plenty of other stuff out there and I sort of wanted to focus more on the, on the nature of the markets themselves rather than on the very detailed specifics of how to, uh, how to address those two things. So if we start off with the rest of the world and what I mean by the rest of the world, well, I don't mean this or this. Uh, it's more like this. This is uh, Cairo and Egypt. Um, to give you an idea of scale, the mosque in the center of the picture there holds around about 5,000 people. This is a fishing village in uh, Nigeria. Uh, slums on the outskirts of uh, India, uh, in, oh, sorry, outskirts of Mumbai in India. Um, this particular area was featured in part of Slumdog uh, Millionaire. One of the big things is that in the next uh, 15 or 20 years, there's going to be about a billion people living in slums in the world. So it's quite an interesting exercise in looking at, uh, looking at how to create services and products that can reach into those, um, into those areas. This is a village in the Nile Delta uh, in Egypt. Uh, they were harvesting rice the day that I came to, um, came to visit, which was just fascinating. The um, hand stitching the bags and everything else was an incredible, incredible process. And here we are back in Shanghai where you can see, um, in addition to like uh, as many skyscrapers as you can focus a stick at, 
an enormous number of barges coming down the river from uh, agricultural areas delivering grain to go into, uh, into ships um, into the South China Sea. But here's something a little bit more sort of formal in terms of structure. Um, this was uh, put together by the uh, IMF, and it's sort of their take on which countries are advanced, emerging, or least developed. Um, I mean, the term emerging markets was coined by uh, Antoine Van Tagmel in uh, the early 1980s when he was working for, uh, for the World Bank. And there are a lot of competing definitions, but this one, this, this one is a map that I'm reasonably, reasonably comfortable with. Um, as you can see, it's pretty much Canada and the US, Western Europe, uh, Australia and New Zealand, and Korea and Japan make up the world's developed economies. Um, emerging markets makes up for uh, a fair bit of the rest. And what's important is that emerging markets doesn't necessarily mean that they are, uh, they are poor you know, in, in, a, in a traditional sense. It's more to do with how the economy as a whole interacts with the rest of the world. Um, the red ones are particularly challenging because they're not, uh, they're not at the stage where they can emerge and interact with, with other economies to any great, great extent. Um, there's a couple of sort of grey ones like North Korea, um, which essentially don't have a functioning economy in a traditional sense. Um, I don't know how many of you, has anyone here been to a red country on this, on this slide? Oh, one or two, an orange one? Good, excellent, good, that's, that's great, that's good to know. So what's happening in these, uh, in these orange countries anyway, these, uh, these emerging markets? Well, they're urbanizing. Um, you know, half the world's population uh, is uh, gonna be living in urban areas very shortly. Uh, they're growing still, despite uh, the best efforts of the world economy, perhaps just not as fast as last year, but still pretty fast. Uh, and they're westernizing, and by that I don't mean in a cultural sense, uh, I mean in terms of adopting um, Western conventions for trade, so things like technology, uh, contract law, uh, and language. So some big opportunities there. I mean, there's you know, billions of people. You know, I think uh, India and China uh, individually are each as big as North America and Europe combined, pretty much as big as all of the blue countries combined. There's an opportunity to have an impact on people's lives, and that uh, is perhaps one of the hardest things to get right. Um, what uh, frightens me is that the impact that you can have on people's lives can be very profound and very quick. Um, but of course, if you go the wrong way, you can have quite a, a strong negative impact on people's lives. And so that's quite an interesting challenge as a designer when uh, perhaps traditionally you're designing for uh, people's needs that aren't as core. To start designing for people's core needs is really, um, really quite frightening. And change, of course. You know, there's a lot of change going on uh, in terms of both you know, economic and social, uh, social change in these, in these countries, and perhaps soon some political change too. So generally speaking, societies are quite open to new things. But of course, with opportunities come challenges. Infrastructure is probably the most obvious one. You know, um, our office in uh, New Delhi in India, for example, only gets power for about half the day. Uh, so, you know, telecommunications and power are, are probably the two biggest issues in terms of infrastructure. Uh, we met some people in Nigeria that phoned ahead when they were still in bed to see if there was power at uh, their employers so that they'd know whether or not they had to go to work that day. I wish I could do that, but it'd be great. Um, education is, is a big thing, especially in terms of literacy and numeracy. Um, China and India in particular have made great leaps and bounds in education, but there's still, you know, 100 million children that, uh, that aren't in education 
uh, in, uh, in emerging markets. And in particular in rural areas, uh, literacy and numeracy are quite challenging. Although the averages look quite good across some of these countries, you know, like say Egypt might be about 60 or 70 percent, within rural areas that falls well below 50 percent. And of course the environment, you know, I think, um, you know, to uh, steal a leaf out of the Interaction 09 uh, folder, you know, sustainability is a really big issue. And one of the challenges that uh, emerging markets face is that as you grow so quickly, as you move into the cities, you're putting a lot of stresses and strains on the local environment. I sort of work in phones, so I'll use the phone thing as an example. In 1984, a cell phone cost around about 485 hours work to purchase. Um, now in North America, it's around about four hours, and I suppose if you get it on a contract, it's probably like two hours or something. Um, I met people in India and Egypt that saved for three months to buy a cell phone. And when they did, they bought a model from three years ago that they were buying secondhand from someone else. And so I think to put this into perspective, it's important that you know, there's 1.2 billion people that are living on less than a dollar a day. Um, most of those are in the red countries, but also in, those, those, uh, in the orange countries. And so I think uh, it can be quite, quite sobering to put that into perspective. Um, I had an interesting conversation with a colleague who'd been doing some research in Nigeria, and he'd met a uh, pig farmer. And that farmer, he actually kept track of how much money he earned in his mobile phone. He just had a, uh, an entry in his address book called Account of Piggery which had you know, about, around about 100,000 uh, Naira. Um, and when my, uh, my friend got back to the hotel, he converted that and realized that it was about the same cost as his hotel room was for one night uh, in, uh, in Lagos. And that was around about 18 months work as a, as a pig farmer. So there's a lot of distortions in, uh, in the world economy. And I think it was quite, um, quite difficult for him to sort of accept that that was, um, that was the case. So, IA in emerging markets, and this, this for me is an opportunity to uh, present a wireframe. I knew I'd get it in the presentation somehow. Um, I just wanted to talk about love first, because there, there has been a lot of love in, love in Memphis, a lot of love in the room. And I had just a, a quick love-related tale from emerging markets. Um, dating sites are something that's really taken off in, uh, in emerging markets, uh, particularly in Islamic countries, but also in India, where there's some quite strong traditions uh, around human relationships and how people, uh, how people find one another. But rather than taking Western dating sites and just rebadging them as with sort of like an Indian name or something like that, uh, dating sites that meet the needs of local cultures are emerging. And so, uh, you know, in India, for example, that means managing the process for the parents of the dating couples as well as for the dating couples themselves, um, which is a really interesting way of, of reflecting uh, particular social needs. Uh, in, uh, in a design. But I think there's also, uh, as always, an opportunity for entrepreneurship in emerging markets. And uh, when I was in uh, Egypt, I was in the, in the south, uh, and I saw a lot of stalls that had sort of sprung up around the, around the city that uh, offered mobile phone calls. I was thinking, okay, that kind of makes sense that you know, people can uh, make phone calls. They were twice as much as you'd pay if you actually had a phone. Um, but essentially, it, it, it was uh, the equivalent of a public phone booth. And I, I asked my, uh, my interpreter, um, you know, who uses these, these stalls? I was expecting it to be people without mobile phones and so on. And she said, oh, no, 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 it's mainly teenagers. I said, 
why would teenagers, and she said, with mobile phones, why would teenagers be going and using these stalls? And it turns out that uh, most of them are trying to have relationships with uh, other teenagers, but they don't want their father to find out. And uh, apparently, teenage girls, their fathers routinely check their mobile phones for any evidence of fraternization with boys. And so this was a way that they could actually go and have that interaction uh, in, a, in a safe environment without, uh, without their father knowing, which I thought was fantastic. They're packed with people at about like 3.30 after school every day. So here I thought I'd start with, well, they're not really rules, eight simple observations uh, from emerging markets, just to talk through some of the things that I've picked up. And these are, these are sort of key observations, both from uh, the process of physical design in terms of um, you know, actual industrial design and devices, but also from a service design perspective. I think the big thing is that most of the time you're working uh, away from known knowns, to sort of paraphrase Mr. Rumsfeld, and so it's important that you try and get an understanding of what's, what's actually happening out there. So the first thing, emerging economies are people rich and time rich, even if they are money poor. And this leads to some really interesting distortions in things like space, time, what we would consider unacceptably slow um, is you know, classed as quite normal and acceptable, um, and vice versa. Um, you know, there's certainly many things in, uh, in uh, Europe and the US that would be considered unacceptably slow in emerging markets. Um, a good example, I was uh, with a taxi driver who'd uh, blown a, a tire and needed to get it repaired. Within 15 minutes, we'd actually identified someone who could repair it for us, gone there, taken the tire off, deflated it, fixed it, reinflated it, put it back on the cab. And I, and I think I'd be lucky to get like, uh, the, a repair person out to even look at my tire within probably a day um, you know, in London. And so often that, that, that human capital makes a very big difference in terms of how, how the economy and how things work. Um, I mean, it's the same in terms of efficiency, that what we might argue is inefficient um, you know, is actually an emerging market, something that works quite, uh, quite reliably and quite well. So that's, a, that's an interesting one. And I mean, IA can reinforce those. You know, the structure of the uh, Egyptian court system was something that I um, I got to experience. It was a traditional Sharia uh, legal system. And essentially, they had a very, very highly regimented structure. Um, but it meant that in order to get a single piece of paperwork done, you'd have to go to two or three locations, get about five different stamps and signatures on it, uh, and then submit it for payment. And so what seemed incredibly inefficient to me was actually something that worked quite well to create uh, an ecosystem around the courts. Um, the classic example there was that because people were having to go between all of these locations and were never in their office, there are a large number of little businesses that were essentially a photocopier plugged into a, a PowerPoint that they'd rent so that you could do all of your copying while you were on the go. And so you'd have these competing photocopier salespeople across corridors from one another trying to sort of negotiate the best price for you when you're uh, filing your documents. Sort of flowing on from that people richness, uh, there's also some really interesting stuff around knowing people, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And one of the things that um, I suppose I realized is that pretty much every single service in emerging markets is social. And the particular example that I've got for this one is actually less around that specific social aspect, but it's also around navigation. You know, I mean, here if I were to navigate out to, to Midtown or something like that, I'd expect to be able to turn on a, a satellite navigation system or you know, bring out my phone and 
get turn-by-turn -turn directions that would take me exactly to where I wanted to get to. But uh, in India, for example, a lot of navigation is based around landmarks. And so the addresses that we were being given to, uh, to go and visit people were things like, essentially you'd get a, uh, a, loca you know, a locality, so you might say Midtown, but then you'd get a landmark, uh, so you might say uh, Midtown near a particular restaurant, and then you'd have the, the, uh, the street and a number and then the person's name. And so in order to get there, you'd basically find someone that knew how to get you to the locality. When you got there, you'd wind down the window, you'd sort of look for someone that looked like they were a local, and you'd ask them, oh, where's this restaurant? And they'd be, well, you take a left and a right. And, you know. um, when you got there, you'd wind down the window again, talk to somebody else and say, hey, do you know where this street is? And so on and so forth until you, until you got to the destination. And so that was a really interesting way of, of looking at navigation as a problem. And one of the nice things about it was that it recognized that change is happening so quickly in terms of streets and, and so on that a traditional um, mechanism of keeping track of streets like we would here won't work. And so it was um, a, much, uh, a much richer way of navigating. And although it didn't always work, it was always an interesting journey. Order through chaos, it sounds a little bit like um, something from 1984, but um, I think you know, certainly when looking at emerging markets coming from a Western perspective, uh, you know, often it seems like there's a lot of chaos out there. Um, in reality, um, there's actually a lot of order in that chaos. Um, now, that said, you know, it's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, in China, for example, you know, tens of thousands of people die each year in traffic accidents. But in China and in India, um, you know, what, what appears like just a cacophony of noise on highways is in fact quite a, a detailed and rich language of communication through using the horn and to make noise to uh, alert other drivers as to where you are and essentially allows uh, the road networks in those countries to uh, behave in quite uh, unique and, and different ways to the way in which uh, road networks work here. One of the things that we've found when doing some user testing on order and structure is that some of the traditional um, approaches that we've used in the West don't necessarily work as well in some emerging markets. So in rural India, for example, we found that creating deep hierarchies could be quite confusing for people. That, that idea of nesting things within things um, wasn't something that they were used to. And in fact, uh, a very shallow structure, you know, which essentially is a mile wide and an inch deep, was something that worked much better, that essentially the mental model that they had of, of structure worked much better with that. Everything's shared. There's certainly, uh, in many countries uh, that are emerging markets, there's a range of um, uh, approaches to personal space, but generally speaking, there is a, a lack of personal space. You know, and things aren't, don't necessarily belong to you, they belong to you and your family and your friends. And so one of the issues with that is uh, you know, we, we need to look at trying to create things that enable uh, products to work well in that situation. You know, I don't think I could walk up to any of you in this room and say, hey, can I borrow your phone for the next day without you feeling concerned about some of the personal material on that device and how, that might be, you know, how I might come across that material when I'm using the phone. And so one of the things, for example, that's happened with a lot of uh, entry-level um, mobile devices is that they have multiple address books and multiple SMS inboxes and so on that you can quite easily switch between. So a single phone can be easily used with five people. There's also some interesting stuff starting to happen in India 
um, around creating virtual space for people that essentially is their personal space. That because they can't have personal space physically, giving someone personal space in a virtual sense um, allows them to experience the benefits of that. Context is king. You know, I think um, you know, we've one of the um, biggest thing is that different things can have different uses depending on how people fit them into a, into a particular context. You know, and I, I think it's great because as a designer, I'm really into the emergent properties and, uh, and behaviors that people have with designs. And one of the things in emerging markets, and we'll see a little bit more of this in a moment, is that people will take your designs and they will repurpose them into new and different things. And I think that's fantastic. I think it's disappointing that, that people don't do that more often. So you really need to understand the context of how your, how your design will be used, but also recognize that you might not have that context right, and there might be other contexts in which your design could actually ultimately end up. Expect the unexpected. You know, as I said earlier when talking about uh, infrastructure, power and telecommunications are constantly being disrupted. Social and religious activities often uh, interrupt people's days as well, and it's kind of interwoven into the, into the fabric of their day. So it's important to design for people to be able to pause and resume, you know, basically come back to something that they've partially gotten through. And I suppose alongside that, you've also got to design for partial attention. You know, I think um, you know, be, beyond sort of the, the classic here of sort of everyone's trying to tweet and call and listen to a, a session and work out what they're, what they're doing for dinner tonight, you know, quite, quite seriously, when you are trying to juggle many different activities at the same time, partial attention is the best that you can expect. Stay on the beaten path. This was an interesting one. Um, one of the things that I realized was that emerging markets are incredibly efficient sometimes. And so, you know, essentially, I was starting to see these well-worn paths that people were following in terms of uh, achieving particular, particular outcomes, and it was essentially a shortcut. So you know, you'd see this lovely, shiny, shiny footpath, but people would actually be taking a shortcut across the grass. And essentially, it's really hard to compete with a shortcut. If you're making footpaths, even if you just put that footpath over the shortcut, it's still not necessarily going to be something that's compelling for people. You really need to be considerably better than what people are using now to be able to, to, be able to compete. And unfortunately, being quicker isn't always enough. Um, you know, being cheaper isn't always enough. You just have to be better than that shortcut and the specific elements and attributes of that shortcut that appeal to people. And finally, everyone is MacGyver. It, it's, it kind of, it's, which is great. I mean, I love MacGyver, it's, but you know, India truly is a nation of MacGyvers. And basically, you need to build for people to fix things. You know, things go wrong. Um, and this is especially true in the hardware space. But I think it's also true, true to an extent in the virtual space that you want to be, a, be able to make sure that you create things that the end users can actually take and adjust to local conditions as they change, because change is continually going on. You know, I think giving people the ability to customize to suit their own needs is a really important part of, of design in emerging markets. So that's sort of the, the key observations that I've made from uh, emerging markets. Um, but of course, testing, prototyping, user research, all of those things help a lot in terms of addressing these kinds of issues, and I'll talk about that, um, that shortly. But first, I wanted to talk about uh, literacy and numeracy. 
This is a, um, a wall uh, on a, uh, in a village in Egypt, and you can probably see just sort of underneath the triangle there, um, some local children have been doing um, math exercises. Um, of course, since it's in Arabic, the, uh, the equations are read from right to left, and uh, I had great fun sort of using, using that photo and uh, a few other bits and pieces to learn the Arabic numerals while I was, uh, while I was commuting between research things in, a, in the back of a taxi. Literacy is, you know, about understanding language. It's not simply, you know, the formal uh, sort of approach which uh, the UN uses is to say that literacy is the ability to read and write a simple sentence in a language. Um, you know, so it doesn't even need to be the local language uh, and it doesn't necessarily need to be, um, you know, need to be uh, functional in terms of, you know, the context of that language. So this map shows uh, literacy around the world and you can see that the colours uh, and the location of it pretty much match and align with the, uh, the emerging market description from earlier. Um, and as I said, what's important to note is that, for example, Egypt there has about between 70 and 80% literacy, but in rural areas it drops below 50%. You know, a similar thing is true. I think India is 60 or 70% across the whole country, but it's as low as 30 or 40% in some rural areas. And of course, India has the additional challenge of having, I think, 14 official languages depending on where you are in the country um, and in reality hundreds of different languages that people are, people are using. So I suppose the question is um, really what can IA do? You know, my original idea for this presentation had I done a, a bit more on literacy was to just use pictures for the whole thing rather than using, rather than using words and that's, that's definitely one of the things that you can do. Using pictures combined with words can actually help, uh, help people to learn. Using metaphors that are meaningful to people is a really important one. You know, I think uh, one of the challenges that I've seen, I work with some uh, icon designers, and one of the challenges that they have are using metaphors that are meaningful to people globally. Um, you know, and I think if you have a look at something like Microsoft Word, it's funny to imagine that we're still using a save icon, which is a floppy disk. I can't actually remember the last time I saw a floppy disk. You know, and there are, and there are people growing up now, for example, that a uh, tape recorder symbol for recording means nothing to them. And so starting to think about, well, okay, what are meaningful metaphors, especially for abstract concepts? One of the approaches I have seen is to, in addition to using a symbol to do that, is to actually contextualize it by showing someone uh, engaging in that activity, um, you know, whatever that happens to be, which is, uh, which is another way of telling, you know, telling a story, essentially. And memorability. Um, you know, that means that people can be shown a path and then be able to come back to it without needing to actually understand the detail of the path. You see that a lot where people are using um, English language uh, applications or operating systems, for example, on computers when they don't have a local, uh, a local variant. I met a lovely fellow in uh, an internet cafe in, uh, outside of Cairo who talked about how he really enjoyed using Yahoo Chat and we asked him to sort of show us how he went into that. And basically, he was counting down the list of groups to the one that he, his friend had told him about, clicking in, counting down again, clicking in. And that was the way that he explored the hierarchy until he got to the group that he knew people would be speaking in Arabic in. And so it was, a, it was quite uh, sobering because I kind of imagine, you know, the people at Yahoo aren't going to think about that when they add, add another element to that list. You know, and then all of a sudden, he's not going to have access to that. Um, that interaction and he'll be relying upon someone else to show him again, perhaps, if he can. You know, and so it's quite, 
interesting that, that people don't always use your information architecture in the way in which you intend. One of the other uh, more sobering uh, things that happened was uh, I had a chat to uh, a woman who can't use a phone because she doesn't actually know the, the numbers. So she's, she's enumerate as well as being, uh, being illiterate. Um, and essentially that meant that she was dependent upon her husband for all of her social contact because uh, she could only answer the phone if it rang. She could never contact her friends directly. Uh, and that was something that um, you know, I felt was you know, really quite, uh, quite sad. And so you know, thinking about, well, okay, how can people communicate without, e without even needing to know numbers is you know, a, a, really, uh, a really big challenge. At the same time, I also met some enumerate people that were keeping track of uh, family finances. And so basically, they were using the pictures on banknotes, you know, much as here you'd have uh, Benjamin Franklin on the $100 note, and Abraham Lincoln on the, no, no, five, yeah. Um, uh, and they were using that to recognize the value of those, of those bills. And so essentially, you know, I, I went back into the office and some people said, that's rubbish, you can't have a persona where someone is illiterate and enumerate and they're managing the family finances. How can, you know, you just can't have that. And I said, well, actually, she did. She recognized, essentially, this will buy me this much stuff. And she was able to group those notes, put some of them in a jar, keep some of them in a, in a little bag around her neck. It was, it was wonderful to see this 70-year-old uh, woman and, and all of the men in the house would have to come up and beg for money to go and get cigarettes. It was great. And she'd be sort of whipping out some, whipping out some notes and doling it out very, um, very carefully. Um, but yeah, she was able to do that without actually, without actually understanding the numbers themselves. And so I thought that was, that was a really powerful thing. You know, I think, you know, for, there's been a lot of criticism, this sort of jumping back to metaphors about um, uh, the uh, one laptop per child project. But one of the interesting things about it is the Sugar UI. And here's just a few um, screenshots from it. Um, mainly because it essentially is into almost entirely icon driven. And you, know, you can do some quite advanced things just by understanding those icons, you know, in terms of making connections between devices, collaborating on things, and so on. Now, I'm not 100% sure about some of the metaphors they've used in those icons, but I think it's interesting that people have actually genuinely tried to um, make an effort to, uh, an effort to do that. And this one I really love, music for the illiterate. Um, the, the new iPod Shuffle with its, uh, with its voice UI basically is the, one of the first consumer electronics products I've seen that allows people to navigate through a hierarchy um, only, using, only using voice. And, and, and essentially, there's no letters at all on that device. Essentially, once you've been shown the three buttons on the remote control, you can then use those to, to navigate through a hierarchy. So I, I'm actually quite, all the rest of it I'm not interested in, but it's, it's um, quite an interesting product for that reason alone. Now, of course, yes, to purchase music and to create that hierarchy, perhaps a little bit more complicated, and it does require literacy, but otherwise a, a really interesting aspect to it. So very quickly, just uh, jumping through tools and techniques, um, not trying to be comprehensive here, just sort of talking about how I've used some of these tools and techniques. You can see some Zs there in internationalization and localization, which is a good example of localization to a North American audience. Internationalization essentially is the idea of trying to make stuff that will work everywhere, and it's hard. You know, um, even the idea of even just really simple things like currency 
uh, is different in different places, and not simply that the symbol changes, but the people's concept of currency changes. So for example, in Nigeria, they don't use coins. And so one of the issues we had when we were trying to uh, communicate concepts to people in different markets was working out, well, how do we represent money? Not everyone has coins. A lot of people in different markets never actually have enough money to see notes. So how do you, how do you sort of represent that? Localization, it's making stuff work somewhere in particular. It's hard too, but perhaps a little bit easier. And you know, cultural sensitivity and social context are a really big part of that. Um, you know, so you've really got to know what are the degrees of freedom that you have to change things. You know, so will the icons need to be different? Will you go for global ones? You know, how will colors change? How will you need to change labels? Um, a really nice example in India is that uh, everyone talks about their pin code Hang on a minute! You shouldn't be telling each other your pin codes. What are you, you know, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? And it turns out that's actually postal index number, which is the Indian equivalent of a postcode in uh, in um, North America or in the in the United Kingdom. Um, I'm not sure what they call the pin code on their bank cards, but yeah, I believe it. I believe it's something else. It's like your bank code or something like that. Linguistics is something that we've been talking about um, over the last couple of days, and I mean, it's central to IA. And one of the challenges here is designing structures that work everywhere. So you know, how do you deal with things like no alphabetic order? So in some languages, uh, say for example in China and Japan, there's been some sort of hacks to sort of get around that, essentially hacking language to uh, enable it to, to work with our traditional approaches. So you look at things like counting the number of strokes in the first character of a word, and then ordering on the basis of that. But it does mean that you get some really quite weird results uh, in tag clouds when you're using a pictographic language that really the alphabetic order doesn't, doesn't mean anything. Um, right to left reading, I was, I was, when I was looking for the love wireframe, I um, happened to get uh, an Arabic ad on, um, on, uh, a Google, on Google itself, and I was a bit horrified because they've presented a right to left language Right, uh, left aligned, which is the equivalent of right aligning a left to right language. It's really hard to read. I, I was just absolutely staggered. But then at the same time, I thought maybe they didn't anticipate that people would be putting in Arabic ads and somebody's just created an ad using their tool to do that. So I thought that's an emerging, emerging property. That's really, that's really great. And of course, concepts that don't translate. Um, you know, so one of the things that we we're looking at was uh, how does a subscription model work? in rural India, and the answer that we came up with is, it doesn't. People don't have subscriptions to anything. You know, if they don't have power, if they don't have a landline telephone, what do they actually do, you know, subscribe to on a, on a regular basis? And so that was quite a, an interesting thing. They're used to paying for things as they need them. And, you know, essentially, um, that concept didn't translate it. <laughs> it didn't go down well. Research, I mean, look, I'll, I'll just sort of refer to my presentation from Interaction 09, which on understanding contexts of use, um, which talked about some of these different um, approaches. I mean, research is really expensive, um, but you really need to make sure that you're using the right tool for the job. Um, so, you know, ethnography for getting really deep insights, field work for targeted insights, and market research for quite broad insights. And testing. You know, I think we heard some great stuff on prototyping uh, yesterday from Fred Beecher. Um, you know, prototyping of various sorts is really important, but you can run into some interesting issues with cultural sensitivity to criticism 
and uh, the way in which people will work with you to create a design. So for example, um, you know, co-creation is, is really important in what, what I do, sort of sitting down with people and getting them to design with me. But in some environments, one-on-one -on -one will work better than a group situation. And in others, you know, it's, it's difficult to get much, uh, much out of it at all, that in a sense, there's so much deference to you as the expert designer that people won't, um, won't criticize. Um, literacy is a really big issue, I think, uh, with testing with illiterate and enumerate people, one of the things, of course, the first thing is ethics clearance forms, trying to, to get people to understand and accept the way in which you'll, you'll do things when they can't actually read the, um, read the form. But we've done some work with drawings to illustrate concepts, um, and that's worked quite well, but again, you have to be very aware of the sensitivity of different issues. So, uh, for example, we had some sketches that had come back from Illustrator that uh, showed a woman wearing a, uh, wearing a tank top, uh, and we said, that's not going to work in an Islamic country. You know, that's really insensitive, and so she got long sleeves, and, uh, and, it, was, and it was resolved. But that's, that's something you've really got to be very careful with and make sure that you um, work with local agencies to, to uh, avoid any potential problems. So that's the, the four things I've been through. I think just one thing I'd like to talk about beforehand is sort of what's the role of IA. And I think you know, it's great to see um, some of the 10% of non-US uh, or at least non-North American attendees at the summit here today. Um, you know, I think IA is, you know, has an opportunity to help support development, growth, and sustainability in emerging markets. And I think the big thing for me is maintaining people's existing livelihoods, but also enabling them to, uh, to look at life improvement, especially through education. And I think there's a really big role for IA to, to play in getting educational information out there and uh, improving literacy and numeracy. Because ultimately, good design is a right, not a privilege. Thank you. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IA Summit, point your browser to boxesandarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the 10th Annual IA Summit, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.